Amen. Well, church, as you're having a seat, Sam, would you mind? Yes, that would be great, the podium. Thank you very much. As you're having a seat, if you would, grab your Bibles, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, and open up uh, to Galatians. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Um, Galatians, we are going to start at Galatians chapter 5, so if you're new with us, welcome. Thrilled that you are with us. Uh, thank you for joining us to worship. Uh, we are walking through the book of Galatians, uh, Paul's letter to this church, and Paul is, he's kind of fiery. He's, he's, he's uh, as my friend Jeff Metter said, he's kind of, this is Paul going nuclear on the Galatian church. So he's fired up about this church who has been led astray to believe that their salvation, that their acceptance from God, that their deliverance from sin and the evil one and death itself um, is, yes, by Jesus, but also by these other things that you need to adhere to. And so Paul is sort of lighting up the Galatian church and saying, no, don't believe that. It's not Jesus plus your good works or your chasing of spiritual things or your whatever you put in the blank there. It is Christ alone, through faith alone, and grace alone. And Paul just keeps ringing that bell. And that is a very applicable message for you and I today. Um, because if you're anything like me, our hearts are stolen away by other things so easily our affections are drawn away toward other things. Our thoughts of how God views me uh, sometimes are drawn to uh, my performance or my achievement. Uh, and Paul, uh, in God's word, in this letter, uh, is setting us straight. And so we've been journeying through. It's been wonderful. And we are going to begin chapter 5 this morning um, I'm going to read really just the first verse, and then we'll use that as a launching pad to jump into the rest of our time here this morning. Galatians 5, verse 1, says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so th this verse, as we begin chapter 5, is really the climax, is really the crescendo, if you will, uh, to the concluding verses of chapter 4. So they go together. Remember, all these verses and chapter breaks are not originally in there. They were added much later. And so I almost wish they would have kept this in chapter 4 so that we understand that it's coming off of all that Paul has just taught at the end of 4, that these two thoughts, uh, this wonderful verse, this amazing verse that if you've grown up in the church you are familiar with, it uh, maybe was a coffee cup verse for you, right? That uh, these two go together. So these sequence of verses, it's clear that Paul is sort of reaching this crescendo moment as he's explaining the position that they are in Christ to this church. So if you remember at the end of chapter 4, Paul lays down two ways to approach God. Um, two ways to approach God. On one hand, you have this way of approaching God. It is on the basis of human achievement, right? Of human achievement, of your own work, of your own grit. Uh, if I get it right, then I can approach the throne of, the throne of God. If I do it this way and I do it well, then I can approach God. Um, so you have 
this approach of human achievement. And Paul sort of gives us this Bible study of Hagar in the end of 4. And it focuses on what we're able to achieve as a rule for my own good works. It's my human effort. And then Paul shows us another way of approaching God. He juxtaposes it by divine achievement. And he does this Bible study in the Old Testament to explain to us this is the way it's always been. That when we lean on the accomplishments of all that God has done for us, that God has accomplished all that we need, that God has accomplished all that is necessary for my salvation, and it is ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. Um, And so... The point is that Paul is making is clear at the end of chapter 4. That, there, that these two ways of approaching God, one human achievement, our own good works, are trying really hard, are even groveling to God, or divine achievements, they're not happy roommates. Okay? Paul's saying they're not two different roads that all lead to the same conclusion. It's not, oh, you can do it this way, or you can do it that way, and all roads lead to one, which is a very common, familiar thought uh, that many of us hear today. As long as you're sincere in what you think, it will all end up in the same spot. Paul is, uh, with, with intensity, saying these are diametrically opposed to one another, these two thoughts. And he's been driving home this foundational truth that for those of us, believer in Christ, that for those of us who have discovered forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ, Paul's essentially saying it is anathema. It is anathema for them to take the approach that says, oh, and it's also what I add to the equation. Paul's saying when you do that, you remove the very cornerstone of the building's foundation and it crumbles on itself you're just left with moral goodness and it lacks and it's devoid of the very gospel of grace and the reason upon which christ jesus came you pull out the very building blocks of the sufficiency of what christ accomplished on Good Friday that we celebrated, and then ultimately Easter last week with his glorious resurrection, conquering sin and death. Paul's saying, don't remove that. And he's been making it so plain. And he's saying a choice has got to be made. He's saying, church, men and women, friends, uh, you can't have it both ways. You can't ride the fence, so to speak. You ever heard that term, fence rider? You can't have one leg over on this side and one leg over on this side. You can't toe the line. He's saying a choice must be made, Galatian church. A choice must be made, risen church. A choice must be made, Christian. Um, Don't ride the fence and think you're going to impress God by your moral achievements and all your goodness. Uh, and then also sprinkle in some grace of God too whenever you need it. That's just the lukewarm middle. And that's not where God is. 
it was a problem. This very issue was what prompted the writing uh, of Galatians, this letter to this church. They were attempting to add to the gospel. Good works, adherence to the law, being a nice, good person. You're agreeable. We're all nice. We all just get along, right? Then God will be happy. Acting spiritual, maybe. Chasing the next spiritual high. Um, and Paul's writing these verses, and he's making it perfectly plain, as Hendrickson put it, that a Christ supplemented, catch this, is a Christ supplanted. That's good. You should write that down. I'll say that again. A Christ, sup, a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. In your attempt to sprinkle a little bit of these other things in there, you end up removing him altogether. Paul's saying we do not, we dare not, we cannot add to the all-sufficient work of Jesus on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Paul's being crystal clear here. It's an important matter for even us today. Why? Like, like oh, that just seems so antiquated. Like, okay, yeah, we get it. Stop going on and on about that. What's, what's the point here? We live in an age of just tolerance. We live in an age where we don't like things cut and dry. Uh, it bristles against us. We don't like to... Um, we don't like certainty in a lot of things. We like just sort of to keep our options open. We like to live in the gray, in the sea of gray. We don't like black and white. We don't like uh, this, is, this is what it says and this is right and this is wrong. Our culture wars against that. And because that is the cultural norm in which we live and breathe and operate in, we therefore don't like it even. Even as Christians, even in the church. Uh, that's just... That doesn't feel right. That doesn't sound good. Um, I mean, there's huge issues that we could point to, like everything's being questioned. Everything is relative. Everything is as you want it. Whatever you think, whatever, however you think it should be, you do you, and we won't say anything else, and then we'll try to just live sort of happily all together. It just doesn't work. When you're your own letter of the law, Chaos is the result. The word of God points us and grounds us and says, this is right, this isn't, this is how we find God, this is how we know God. And because everyone's lived in the mushy middle, in the gray, we end up saying things like, we end up questioning the very things, our culture is questioning things about even gender. We're confused on gender. Confused on what it is to be a man or a woman, a biblical man or a biblical woman. That's even offensive to say today. We're confused on so many things in this cultural moment. That is the very essence of what we live and breathe and operate in every day is confusion and confusion breeds anger. And anger uh, breeds division. And anger and confusion and division breed tribalism. And we get in our little tribes, and then we surround ourselves with our own tribe, and we yell at the other ones about how wrong they've gotten it. 
Paul's saying the only unifying, beautiful force of forgiveness and love in this world is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it brings enemies and strangers in all cultures and every person from every tribe, tongue, and nation together under the banner and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the only one that can do that in an age of tribalism and anger and tremendous confusion. So Paul, the Apostle Paul is standing up in the midst of this church that is struggling with a lot of confusion about how God would see them and love them. And he speaks with clarity and he speaks with definition and he's um, hated for it. And he's even regarded as a heretic by these other people that have come into the church. So, um, it's no surprise that when we stand on the truth of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he's made us, how he's formed us, how he gathers us together, that uh, when we say we are certain about Jesus, we are certain about the love of Christ and the grace of the Lord Jesus and how he saved us, and it's nothing by our own merits. And the clarity with which we say that and stand on that in these very vague and gray days uh, is alarming to people. And it's not... uh, super popular. It's certainly not how you fill a lot of chairs on a Sunday morning <laughs> or even a living room in Paul's day. Um, the scriptures speak with clarity concerning this issue of salvation. And there are many in here uh, that may say, or there's many people in here whose friends and neighbors or people you know may say, well, as long as you're just sincere in your heart, isn't that all that matters? As long as you're just, as long as you just love uh, and are sincere and your heart is good, does, isn't, that, isn't, that what, isn't that where, where God wants to ultimately get us anyway? No, the Bible says that your heart is, de- is, is just a wellspring of deceit and don't trust it. You actually need a new heart, the Bible teaches. So don't trust your heart Trust the word of God and let that inform your heart because your heart will lead you astray. It will lead you into all kinds of wrong thought um, and wrong theology. Essentially, don't trust your heart because it can be sincerely wrong. And most of the time it is. Can anyone attest to that? Just me? It's just following my heart. Oh gosh, it led me here. Why? Right? All through the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, there's stories of people that says, and they did what was right in their own eyes. That's called following your heart. And every single time, every time, every biblical story of men and women saying, and they did right in their own eyes, leads them into sin, confusion, and despair, and not trusting God, but trusting in themselves. Every time. So, Jesus, in him, we find reality, we find truth, we find righteousness. Um, And interwoven in Galatians, as we've been reading it, um, 
we find the undeniable centrality of Jesus bar none. There's no one else to, there's nothing else to add. It's Christ. The centrality of Christ, the gospel of Christ is where we push all of our chips in. And that's why we keep talking about it here. That's why Paul just keeps ringing the bell on it. That's why Martin Luther is quoted saying uh, in his church, the people came to him and said, Pastor, we know you're a brilliant man, but why do you just keep preaching to us the gospel? And his response famously is because week after week after week, you keep forgetting. That's me. That's us. So here's where we're going today, quickly, um, if I'm lucky. Uh, Number one, a principle that Paul wants us to affirm in our hearts and know and treasure. And then secondly, lastly, a perspective to be adopted. Normally preachers have three. I shaved it to two in hopes of speeding it up, okay? In fact, I fit the third one into the, sneakily into the second one, but it's a little too much information, right? First, a principle to be affirmed. It's found in our first verse. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There was a movie that came out in 1998, great year. Uh, I was in high school. Uh, It was called A Man in the Iron Mask. Anyone ever seen that movie? Four of us, perfect. This will really land well for us. It was starring a young heartthrob named Leonardo DiCaprio. Anyone familiar with this gentleman? Okay, yes. When I preach about the gospel, we need to have that same reaction (laughs) as Leo just incited in some of the folks in here, okay? Just... Side note, uh, maybe that might be helpful. So Leo comes on the scene, a man in the iron mask, uh, just tremendous movie. I can't really remember all of it. This is the part that always sticks out to me. I was reading this verse, and I was thinking of this movie. Leo plays um, a prisoner in a dungeon. He's essentially the true heir to the French throne. This movie is based on a true character. There really was... Uh, historical evidence of a French prisoner that wore an iron mask in the French dungeons uh, until he died. This movie took sort of some folklore that the one in the iron mask was really the true heir to the French throne and that if they released his mask, he would have rightfully taken the throne. Uh, And so this movie sort of plays on that folklore of that tale. There's a scene in the movie. Why do I bring this up along with Galatians? There's a scene. So this prisoner... This man, he's wearing this iron mask. He's in the bottom cellars of the dungeon. He's got a padlock on the mask. Some people discover he's the true heir to the French throne, and they seek to bring the true true heir, the true king, out into reality and usurp the faker that that put him in a dungeon and stole the throne. They get him. And they remove the mask, and he's been in captivity for years and years and years and years and years. And all he's known is this iron mask. He's seen through bars, and he's never been able to remove it. Because if they saw his face, they would know what he looks like. And they know he's the true one, so they covered his face with a mask. And they freed him, and they removed his mask. And there's a scene in the movie where uh, handsome Leo, freed of the mask, he's all cleaned up. He's finally out of that cell. He finally has this metal 
mask that he has worn that has covered his identity. He's been liberated. He's been freed from it. His identity is being revealed. And he can't really take all that's going on around him. And there's a scene where he goes back into his room and he takes that mask and he puts it back on. Because it's all he's known for so, so, so long. And the lock isn't locked, but he just almost wants to hide. He wants to go back to that, that which is familiar to him. That which he lived for so, so long in bondage and in chains. And it seems ludicrous. Like, what, what are you doing? The mask is off. And he puts it back on and he sits down and he wears it all night. This is what Paul is telling you and I. This is exactly what Paul is writing to this church and to you and I. He's saying, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Uh, He did not free you from sin, Satan, death, and bondage from sin for you to go back and put it back on. He, he, for, you can get rid of it. There's no lock on it. You don't, are not bound by it. And he knows our tendency to go back and just say, well, this is what I know. And this is going to comfort me for a moment because I don't understand how to operate in this, but I'm going to put it back on. Saying, you're free. Many of us, even today, uh, run back to the comfort of sin run to the familiarity of sin, Uh, run to the familiarity of legalism even to approach God, Uh, run to the do's and don'ts so that I'm gonna get it right and I'm gonna grovel at the feet of God so that he might accept me. Paul's saying, it is for freedom that he set you free. Essentially what he's saying is that Christ sets our conscience free from the guilt of sin. The only reason you put the mask back on is because you're racked with guilt and shame. And you think to yourself, I deserve to put this back on. God would probably want me to. Yeah, I know Jesus is good, but I just need to put the chains back on because I'm a, I'm a mess. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Jesus has come to set your conscience free from sin and guilt. I just long for our community and our neighbors and our friends to know that because we live amongst the people that are just burdened by that. We fill our lives with so many other things to mask it. Some of you may be even here this morning, may have that very burden this morning. You may have walked in wearing that mask. So you've tried to drown it out, that empty, echoing guilt of shame, of sin. You try to drown it out through maybe religious activity. Um, You like coming. You like the songs. You like the way it makes you feel for a moment. But then when you leave, it's like the ebb of a wave that rushes out and you just can't catch it when you leave here and then you're racked again with more guilt and shame. Paul says, Christ has set you free. 
when you're sitting in here and when you walk out the door. Christ has set you free. It is for freedom he set you free. Don't walk out of here and put back on the mask of shame and sin. It's not, for, it's not like a get out of jail card free when you come here for an hour and then you get the uh, warm fuzzy and then you got to chase. No, it's, it's paid for. It's final and it's full. Um, many of us leave this place in the mountain of iniquity, if you will, kind of shows up and we think it's insurmountable for me. But Jesus spells freedom from a guilty conscience. That's what Paul's talking about. He set us free from that. He sets us free from the fear that we've done one sin too many to gain his acceptance. I can't tell you how many times I get asked this question in a roundabout way as a pastor. Well, how many times is too many times to sin? How many times could he forgive me for this one? Um, answer, all of them. That's how pervasive and wonderful and beautiful the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ is for us undeserving sinners. Isn't that wonderful? It's for freedom he set you free. So because of Christ, we can lay our head down on the pillow knowing I stand right before a holy and just God. Undeservedly on my own accord, yes, but on his record, I stand clean. But for those of us that sort of put that mask back on every time we walk out these doors, we have no answer for that, for our continual sin. And so the answers we come up with are, I need one more rung to climb to prove to God that he loves me. I need one more thing to do to show him that I'm really, really sorry. But the greatest liberty, Paul tells us, is found in Jesus. So that's the principle to be affirmed. That's what Paul's saying. Remember this. Affirm this. Preach this to your own heart every morning when you wake up. Preach this to each other. Preach this to your friends and your children. That is our hope. This is what we need to affirm, right? That Jesus frees us from the bondage of sin, shame, and guilt because of the gospel. Um, Paul is telling us something also we need to make note of. He's saying, do not let yourself be burdened, verse one in this next word, again, again. So he said, you were, you were once burdened with this reality, but Christ has set you free. Do not go back in the blocks, in the chains, Right? You need not go through your days with fear of condemnation. Christ has met the demands of the law for you. Do not, you don't have to labor for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died and took upon himself the condemnation to purchase for us the freedom that we have. So we can stand on it. Second point, because there is this liberty we receive in Christ, there is a liberty that we have to reject as well. 
okay? So no one puts the cuffs back on, right? We're to enjoy this freedom. But then he goes on to this next idea in parallel with this. In the verb he uses here in verse 1 where he says, stand firm. Stand firm. You see that? Is that up there? Stand firm. It's the verb, and it can be equated, and it's used often in a tug of war. Anyone ever done tug of war growing up or recently? Probably if you're older and done tug of war, you broke a foot or something like that trying because it's really difficult. In a tug of war, what do you do? You don't just stand there and do this, and it says, ready, go, because you'll just get ripped down. In a tug of war, this is what you do. If, and if you're, you're probably on a big grass field, I don't even know if they do tug of war anymore because it's always dangerous. Someone breaks an arm or dislocates a shoulder. But anyway, they should. Tug of war, you sort of dig your heels into the dirt and you get your footing and you just hold on to that rope and you push your weight back and all of you dig in your heels to do what? To stand firm. That's what Paul's saying. Don't just... Don't just be, he's saying, don't just be the Christian that just does this. Because when, when the tug comes, boom, you're getting knocked right over. He says, stand firm. Grit your heels into the dirt, and you hold on to the rope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you do not let the world yank you face first in the mud and try to drag you through. Stand firm in your freedom in the gospel. Stand firm. Um, dig in your heels. Don't allow yourself to be tugged back into the yoke of sin and bondage and guilt and shame and obeying a bunch of rules to approach God. And unless you have an understanding of the freedom that we have in our salvation in Jesus, um, you just don't know what I'm talking about right now. Why is he talking about tug of war? What is he, what? what, is, what is, why is he going on and on about this? I don't understand. If you think you became a Christian because you were nice and because you did a couple of nice things and because you went down the ABC ladder and you said, yeah, there's a God and I believe there is a Jesus and he lived a long time ago and that's wonderful. Um, and I just try to do good and be good because Jesus was good and he did good for other people, then you have no idea what the hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote of in 1738 when he wrote down these words. Once my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. That's the condition of our hearts and soul before Jesus See, when you know and you've been confronted with the ugliness of your sin and you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit of God for your sin and you know what it is to be freed from it by Christ Jesus who rose again on the third day and said, it is finished. And you put all your hope in him. Then you can resound with the second part of this hymn where he says this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all of him mine. Alive him my living head and clothed in righteousness of divine. Hear this. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. 
when you understand, when we grip the realities of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we sing of his work, not our own. It would be arrogant to sing songs if I earned my own passage. It would be boastful arrogance and strange if we all sat here and sung about how glorious we've earned our right to approach the throne of grace. Our only boast is in Jesus Christ. Um, And it's always very subtle, though, all these things that creep in to our thinking about God. Remember these folks that came into this church in Galatians (laughs) it it, it wasn't like a battering ram against Jesus and the gospel and all that he's done. It was just kind of like, yeah, 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 we we affirm that too, but it's also this. It's always a little add-on. You also, this is just as important as what Jesus did, they'll often say. Paul's saying, not for a moment. Because a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. Spurgeon said it well. He says, our hearts are idol factories. We, every day, just invent a new thing to worship, to take the place of Jesus. That's why we need to remind and come back to the gospel time and time again. So these people that are coming in, and there's people that come in uh, in our lives through all different mediums, uh, verse 8, they are persuading this church They're persuading the believers that they need better things to be accepted. If you see that in verse 8, that that word persuading, that you need to also accept these things. And then as a result of their persuasion, the church, verse 10, is led into confusion. I think the ESV translates it, it's troubling you. It's confusing you. So the persuasion that you also need this to be really accepted and loved by Jesus, the persuasion of these kind of good arguments that sort of sprinkle in some Bible into them, um, and they say, yes, Jesus, but also this, are persuading these people, and then they're left in confusion about what to do, and so they end up believing a, a false narrative about how to approach the throne of grace. This is exactly the strategy of the evil one. It's been since the very beginning in the garden. A persuasion. God's word is not really right. And a confusion about what it really means. Well, did he really say, right? That's what these folks are doing right here. And it's like a little steady trickle of poison. Just a little bit. Um, And it drips slowly. And it's almost unnoticed at first. And you're like, I don't know. But then after time, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine. I've kind of gotten used to it. Um, And confusion and persuasion that drips in time after time, Paul's saying, will damage the very foundation of the building upon which you're trying to stand on. And he's saying this confusion needs to be avoided and resisted. The tug of war, stand firm. And if this wrong goes unchecked and it's then accepted as normative. And so what Paul is doing, if Paul hadn't written this letter, this church would have drifted away from the gospel. He's preserving the gospel, the gospel of grace. It's a really big deal. Um, 
this is a big deal in our culture. I could think of just tons of examples here. Um, Paul says, stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm. Don't go back into bondage. He goes, be changed by the freedom of Jesus. Stand firm in him. There is a world that is searching for sexual freedom. There's a world that's searching for gender freedom. There's a world that's searching for financial freedom. There's a world that's searching for the next elixir of health freedom. Paul says, no, those aren't salvation. Stand firm in Christ and in Christ alone. Finally, there's a perspective to be adopted. I'll be really quick because I always run out of time here at the end. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul says, uh, God is not finished with you yet. We eagerly await the hope that we have. In other words, we're under construction. Christ is, we are complete in Christ, but there's pieces in our lives that he longs to build up and shore up. One of my seminary professors explained it this way. If you could uh, fly a helicopter over your life, and see your whole life from the vantage point of a helicopter, and below you is a forest, when you are saved, for some reason, God just clear cuts certain areas in your life. And where there was brambles and thorns and bristles and impassable uh, hedge, he clear cuts it into a field of grace and green pastures. But there are also other pockets of thickets and brambles and thorns that remain. And my professor says, the life of the Christian is taking the tools that God has given you in the Christian as with the church and the word of God and you have your acts and you spend the rest of your life trying to clear what you can until you see him face to face. I was like, that is beautiful. Meaning, we're never fully there. We're all a work in progress. This is what Paul's saying. Verse six, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working itself through love. Paul's saying, listen, this is the, this is the argument here. This is the Jewish uh, Judaizers coming in saying, you got to be circumcised. There's other people saying, you don't have to be circumcised. And Paul's saying, I'm, I'm just like fed up with this whole thing, this whole argument. Your whole argument is worthless. You're arguing about worthless things. He's basically looking at them. I hope there's not too many kids there. He's saying, shut up already. Stop it. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. That's the hallmark of true, genuine faith. Not these silly arguments that you're having with each other. Don't let the spikes of silly arguments and all these fringe things that you chase down that distract you from what is the hallmark of spiritual faith, don't let it get its spikes in you. It opens you up to all sorts of dangers. I'm not saying don't be wise and know your Bible and press in and know and love the word of God that which he's, which he's given to us. Yes, yes, and amen. But there are all sorts of fringe things that you can chase rabbit holes down that get you into big trouble. Verse 11. But if, brothers, I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In, the case, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He says, don't miss this. When you argue these petty little things that just are worthless and not worth your time, you miss the cross. The cross is the most offensive thing. 
Not this argument of how you might be better looked upon by God. And he's saying, Christians, stand firm in that truth. People, churches love to hear that you guys are doing just fine. You're really great. As long as you keep coming here, if you give a little bit of money or a lot of money, then you'll be doing really fine. But really, we're all just good good-natured, great people, and just follow your heart and leave here, and we'll all do it again next week. Yay! People kind of love that. I know it's caricaturized, but people love that message. What people don't like, what people hate to hear, is there's only one way, friend. Uh, and the one way to approach God is letting go of all the merits that you think you deserve and that you think make you great and wonderful and approachable to God because they're rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus and him crucified. And the only way to approach him is you bow down at the foot of a bloody Roman cross and say, it is on his merits that I stand. That is offensive. That is offensive in a culture that says, you can do anything you want. You're really great, so keep at it. The message of the gospel is you can't get to him with your very best efforts. Um, it's through Christ and Christ alone. And so Paul says it's your choice. You can gain the world and popularity but lose your soul or you can come with the empty hands of faith saying, Jesus, it's all you. Fill me up. Free my guilt and my shame and let me live a life boldly declaring you and your salvation. I'm gonna end with this quote. Machen says it this way, and I love it. Christ will do everything or nothing for you. Either you earn your salvation if your obedience to the law is perfect or you trust entirely to Christ's completed work, but you cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace if justification, even in the slightest measure, is through human merit, then Christ died in vain. That's what Paul's saying. Church, stand firm on the gospel of grace. Receive it. Don't put back on the mask of sin and shame, thinking that's how I need to approach God. He's removed it through the, his grace. You can approach the very God in heaven through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and stand firm in it fully accepted, fully loved because of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the message of grace. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Paul gives us true, incredible words to stand and he resists the evil one, God, and it pushes back on our false thoughts and he gives to us the very hope of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that we stand on the very merits of that which Jesus has accomplished for us that we could never do on our own. And so God, I pray that we would be a church that through our songs and through our lives and through our conversations and through our time together outside of this room, that we wouldn't put back on the shackles of sin and shame and guilt, but we would live in the freedom that Jesus gives us in the gospel. And it would be pervasive and beautiful and wonderful and freeing and you would grant to us much joy because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the church.